Welcome to the 2018 Prima Podcast Series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima Podcast, Maureen Murphy and Molly Warwas will discuss identifying and managing the risk of borrowed employees. Maureen is a partner at Copen Airdu LLC. She represents not-for-profit and commercial organizations, including corporations, trade associations, local government entities, social service organizations, and religious institutions. Maureen focuses her practice in employment law, tax law for tax-exempt organizations, school law, and general corporate law. Maureen has defended numerous claims before the EEOC and state and local human rights agencies and has litigated cases in state and federal court. Molly Waras is also a partner at Copen Airdu LLC. Molly has represented clients at the state and national level in matters involving complex insurance coverage issues, including personal injury claims, long-tail liability matters, uninsured motorist claims, business interruption claims, and catastrophic property losses. She has counseled clients in drafting manuscript coverage agreements and amendments, tendering matters for defense and indemnification by third parties and preparing reservation of rights and denial of coverage letters. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Molly and Maureen, thank you for joining us today for Prima's podcast series. What do you mean when talking about borrowed employees? When I talk to my clients about borrowed employees, I'm usually talking about people who do work for or within their organization, but who are not employees of the organization. So those might be people who are independent contractors, where the organization has a contractual relationship with that person directly but they choose not to hire them as an employee for whatever reason. Borrowed employees, though, can also be people who are supplied to you by a vendor or who come to work with the organization through the organization's relationship with another entity. So some examples that we see, many companies outsource, for example, their food service, their janitorial work. So the people who are working in your company's cafeteria are actually employees of services like Aramark or Sodexo or similar companies. For some of my skilled nursing home clients, uh, their rehab staff are actually employees of another company who are supplied to the facility. An example that we often see in municipal contexts are where you might have one town or city who contracts with a neighboring town to supply their police officers or EMS services. Um, those people are all examples of what we'd call borrowed employees. What kind of risks can borrowed employees pose to an organization, particularly when it comes to claims by third parties? Borrowed employees often create the same risk for an organization that its own employees will create. Just like a regular employee, a borrowed employee might do something or fail to do something that results in a third party being injured or making claims for damages. But I think there are two main points think all organizations who use borrowed employees have to keep in mind in terms of risk control. First, in many cases, a third party, you know, your customer, your resident, the people who you're providing services to, those people will be completely unaware that this person is not your employee. This borrowed employee might be wearing a uniform or some other indication that even implies that they are part of your organization or, at a minimum, There's no easy way to say that this person is not an employee, just like every other person working within the organization. So from a third party's perspective, 
that borrowed person represents your organization in exactly the same way as any other employee of yours. And if that third party has a claim or an injury or a complaint that involves the borrowed employee, they're going to lodge that claim with your organization and name you in the lawsuit. And it may be up to you and your company to bring that borrowed person's actual employer to the table. Uh, the second and, and perhaps the more important thing to remember about borrowed employees is that organizations use them often have far less control over those people in terms of hiring, training, and in many cases, supervision than if you were working with a direct employee. From a business perspective, it can make a lot of sense to outsource that responsibility rather than investing your own time and resources to hire or train somebody whose work might be ancillary to your business, like the cafeteria worker or the janitor you know, or who specializes outside in an area outside of your expertise, like the, the rehab staff in a nursing home, you know, or if it's a situation where you don't have the resources to hire those people directly, the borrowed police or EMS workers, you know, that makes sense from a business perspective, but you are relying on another company to supply you with people who are qualified and trained. That gives you less control in terms of making sure that these borrowed employees' training includes the same risk control considerations that you might use with your own employees. You may have outsourced the training because you're not qualified to train a rehab uh, personnel on how to perform their job, but you also lose the ability potentially to train them on the risk control that your organization has put in place. You may also not have the same opportunity to vet those for hiring since you're relying on the company or entity supplying those people to do that work. That lack of control can present new risks or they can amplify the risks that arise from a more typical employment relationship. Can an organization or entity be held liable for actions by borrowed employees? Yes. Under the law, if a third party is injured because of something done by a borrowed employee, particularly if they were providing services on your behalf, you can absolutely be held liable to that party. Now, you may be able to shift that liability over to the entity that actually employed that person or supplied them to you or in the independent contractor situation to the contractor himself or herself. But being able to effectively shift that liability often requires foresight on the organization's part when setting up the borrowed employee relationship initially, as well as consideration during the relationship, and then working with legal counsel once a claim has been made to effectively follow through in transferring any liability. What about in the employment law context? Can borrowed employees and independent contractors subject us to liability if they engage in harassment or other inappropriate behavior while they are providing services? Yes, they can. With respect to third parties, and in this context, the third parties would even be your own employees or your customers, members, or other constituencies, their conduct, the conduct of a borrowed employee or an independent contractor, can create liability for you. And therefore, you have a responsibility for their conduct while they're performing services in your workplace. An example of this is in the sexual harassment area or a claim of harassment. As an employer, you have a duty to your employees 
to protect them from sexual harassment and to act on complaints of sexual harassment made by them in the workplace. Even if the person, even if the harasser is an independent contractor or a borrowed employee, you still have as the employer of your employees a responsibility to take action against that independent contractor or borrowed employee. And your failure to effectively respond to a complaint of harassment could subject you as the employer to liability to your employee even though the harassment was committed by someone that you have hired or brought in as a borrowed employee or a independent contractor. So therefore, if you are relying on an independent contractor or a borrowed employee's employer to train them for the position in your workplace and to verify their qualifications for their position, that's okay. But you still have to have a method in place to make sure that these borrowed employees or independent contractors are still complying with your policies and requirements in terms of code of conduct and appropriate behavior in your workplace. What if our organization or municipality utilizes people who come to us through a vendor or a contracting partner, but we also pay that person directly or hire them to do additional jobs for us? Are they still a borrowed employee? Well, they're still a borrowed employee with respect to the, the vendor or the contracting partner, but not with respect to the services that you have hired them to directly to perform. And if you've got them on your payroll as an employee for those services. The other thing to keep in mind with that is if you are contemplating as an employer hiring as an employee, someone who is providing services as a borrowed employee or through a, an independent contracting service, you need to make sure that you have the right under the terms of your agreement with the borrowed, you know, the, the employer that's lending you their employee or the contractor that is you are contracting with to provide that person that you have the right to hire that person under the terms of your contract. Oftentimes, the independent contractor or the borrowing lending employer will say, you as the borrowing employer do not have the right to now hire this person that we have provided to you. So that's the first thing, whether you even have the right to hire that person for other services in the first place. But if you do, and you've hired them and put them on your payroll to provide services other than what they are providing as a borrowed employee or independent contractor, you want to clearly delineate what those services are, make sure they're very different than the services they're being provided as a borrowed employee, and you as the employer of that person will be responsible for their conduct that they engage in as your employee when providing those services. The other concept that this question suggests is the concept of joint employers. So when do you have a joint employment relationship? And that relationship can exist when an employee is employed by two or more employers such that the employers are both responsible individually and jointly to the employee. 
Under the Fair Labor Standards Act, for, it, for example, it is possible for a worker to be employed by two or more employers who are both responsible for compliance. Joint employment, in fact, is included in that law's definition of employment. What is a joint employer? Well, a joint employer, as we've talked about, is a situation that arises by law. So the employee and the employers may see themselves as three separate parties, but the law says that with respect to that employee, that employee has joint employers, two or more employers, generally two. So in the context, for example, of uh, the wages and hours, the law may say, well, both you, this employee is providing services for both of you. So in the course of a given week, we will combine the hours that that employee works for both of you. And if the number of hours worked exceeds 40 in that week, as between the two of you joint employers, you're responsible for paying overtime for the excess hours worked over 40. What are the situations where joint employment applies? Well, we talked about the situation under the Fair Labor Standards Act. It can also apply under Title VII discrimination laws and under the National Labor Relations Act, which governs and protects concerted activity by employees in the workplace. Generally, under the National Labor Relations Act that just very recently established a new test for determining uh, whether two employers are joint employers, and under Title VII, the real focus is on whether the employers both exercise control, direct control, over the employee. So in, in that sense, it's the employee, in a sense, is beholden to two employers, and either of those employers could say, you're terminated, uh, you are demoted, you will not receive a raise, would have the right to make decisions about that employee's employment and their wages, compensation, the terms of their employment. And then, of course, in the context of the overtime laws, that's the other area where whether two employers are actually joint employers or not comes up. What is the impact of joint employment? The real impact of joint employment is the liability that it can subject an employer to or two employers to for as with respect to that employee. So as we've talked about with overtime laws, if an employee is working and providing services and the law determines that actually the employers are joint employers, then all of the hours are combined and those employers have to decide whether who pays the overtime. It is not to say the employers cannot say, well, neither of us is responsible for overtime because me as employer one employed this person for 20 hours this week and employer two employed that person for 25 hours. So neither of us is responsible for overtime. The law will say under the Fair Labor Standards Act that people are joint employers, that no, there was that employee worked for both of you for 45 hours that week, they have five hours of overtime, and you joint employers need to decide who and how you will pay that overtime but that employee is entitled to the overtime wages for that period of time.
In the context of Title VII or the National Labor Relations Act, if an employee is terminated or suffers another adverse employment action, both employers can be responsible in damages to that employee. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here are some words from Prima's Member Services Manager, Danica Williams, regarding Prima membership benefits. Prima is a membership organization dedicated to advancing the knowledge and practice of risk management in the public sector. Prima members come from a diverse range of disciplines, entity types, sizes, and share a variety of titles, including risk manager, human resources professional, workers' compensation coordinator, employee benefits coordinator, claims administrator, safety personnel, risk pool administrator, just to name a few. Despite their titles, there is one resounding theme among these individuals, and that is that they manage risks within their entity and importantly, risks affecting the public interest. Prima members enjoy a robust array of educational programming, risk management resources, and networking opportunities. Some of Prima's member benefits include access to blogs, podcasts, webinars, Prima's job bank, Prima's online community where members have the ability to connect, share, and solicit information directly from their colleagues, Prima's library of risk management documents, Prima's flagship publication, the Public Risk Magazine, and member discounts to all Prima events and training. Becoming a Prima member is one of the most worthwhile career investments a risk management practitioner can make, not just for themselves, but for their entire entity. To learn more about Prima member resources, visit primacentral.org. How can you protect your organization or municipality from liability for the acts of borrowed employees and independent contractors? The best recommendation that I have is when you're setting up these relationships is to reduce it to writing, to have some written contract or document that outlines what exactly the nature of this relationship is. Basically, you develop a contract with the party who either supplies the borrowed employee or directly with the independent contractor, if it's an independent contractor relationship, that defines their respective duties in terms of the relationship. The contract should set forth if the independent contractor is going to have responsibility to defend and indemnify the employer for conduct of, not the employer, but that the independent contractor will take responsibility for defending and indemnifying your organization for claims that arise from that independent contractor's responsibility. You also want the contract to include some proof from the independent contractor's insurance coverage that backs up their her responsibility. And the same would be true of any relationship where you are borrowing the employees of another entity or where a vendor is supplying um, people to perform work within your organization. With respect to the indemnity language, your contract should include language that requires the party supplying those borrowed employees to bear the responsibility for claims arising from the conduct of their employees. And that also requires the party to defend your organization if a lawsuit is filed. And again, with those borrowed employees, you want to make sure that their employer has insurance that backs up those responsibilities and that the insurance extends to both actions of 
the lending employer, for example, that it will protect, that their coverage will apply to claims like negligent hiring, negligent training, negligent supervision, and that the insurance also covers the actual action of the loaned employee. So there is some resource out there. Your contract can also define some of the responsibilities and rights relative to the joint employment or joint employer situations that Maureen's been talking about. So there's a clear understanding between the parties involved going into this relationship, how exactly it's supposed to work, who's responsible for which component of the person you know, of the employee's uh, rights and responsibilities and how all of that's going to be managed rather than engaging in the relationship and then finding yourself in really murky territory where no party quite understands what they're supposed to do relative to everyone else. Do you have any suggestions for negotiating to include those terms in the contract if they are not offered by the party we are working with? Yes. We realize that some of these borrowed employee relationships, particularly ones like the examples we've we've mentioned before, where you have a municipality borrowing particular employees or categories of people, you know, police officers, EMS personnel from a neighboring municipality or agency. In those relationships, I think the difficulty arises because Neither party is necessarily in the business of serving as a staffing agency or a contractor. Instead, the relationship arises because perhaps you have a municipal police force and you have a municipal housing agency that says, you know what, hiring off-duty officers as our security guards just makes the best sense for us. But neither of the parties, you know, it's it's really more of a relationship of convenience and um, efficiency but neither party is necessarily used to dealing with these indemnity and insurance issues on a regular basis when it comes to loaning out their employees. So when you're negotiating for these terms, I think the important thing to point out to your contracting partners, whatever party you might be borrowing employees from, is your relative positions in terms of hiring and training of those folks. You know, if this is a situation where you're borrowing employees from a neighboring town, remind that that town, the person negotiating on their behalf, that they are the ones in the position to hire and train the people, that you're relying on them to supply you with well-trained and vetted people for the position. And if any situation arises where your municipality organization is sued because the people that they provided you were not properly trained, the fair result is for the entity or the town who supplied those people, trained them, who said that they were appropriate, the most fair result is for them to bear the responsibility if a claim arises because of that person's actions. There are situations where you're going to negotiate for terms that are a little more balanced or a little more mutual. You know, if the claim arises because of a lack of training by the person's direct employer, they should be responsible. Perhaps if the claim arises because of something that your organization did, you may have to to step in in that situation and share some of that responsibility. Keep in mind that indemnity and insurance requirements and contracts and any other contractual terms that define your relationship, they're not cookie-cutter form language, and they really shouldn't. Both parties can and should work with legal counsel when negotiating and writing contract terms that reflect the party's understanding and agreement 
as to how they are going to share responsibility for the actions of the borrowed employees. Are there any other tips or best practices that you recommend when using borrowed employees? Certainly. Just like with any other contractual relationship, you want to take care in deciding who you're contracting with in the first place. So find out, you know, if you're saying we're going to bring all of our janitorial staff in from this other company, find out what that company's hiring and training processes are like. Do they require, you know, if you've got a school setting and you're bringing in a janitorial crew, is that company who's supplying those workers, do they do criminal background checks? Do they have the same requirements that your organization would have in vetting and reviewing employees? What will the mechanism be if they supply you with a person who you have concerns about once they're on the job? You want to try and think through some of those issues before you begin the relationship so that you don't find yourself in a contract situation where you have very little control over the people who are on your property, on your premises, interacting with the people who your organization serves. Consider also how those borrowed employees are going to be supervised. Is there going to be a supervisor from their employer on staff providing the supervision, or is it really going to be up to your employees to monitor what these borrowed employees are doing? And if that's the case, then what's the mechanism and lines of communication for discipline or for taking other action if the borrowed employee is is creating concern? Consider also whether your contract should include terms setting forth requirements for the employees who are loaned to you. For example, are you going to require the lending employer to only provide individuals who have a certain number of years of experience, who carry a particular license if that's necessary, or who have um, particular credentials? You know, whatever your situation requires, you want to think through um, whether those are issues that you want to raise and, and memorialize in the contract at the outset rather than having to deal with them later. And then once the borrowed employees are actually on your premises carrying out the job, make sure that you're following through in any obligations that you have taken on to notify the lending employer if a problem arises. What do I do if a lawsuit is filed against me because of a borrowed employee's actions? In that instance, I would say the best thing you can do is to make sure to let your attorney know as early in the case as possible that this person was not your employee and that they came to you via another party. Provide your attorney with copies of any contracts that you have governing that relationship. Your attorney might recommend that you make a request for the person's actual employer to take over the defense of the case, or that the person's actual employer be brought into the lawsuit. Your attorney may look at the contract and say, these are the things that you have a right to require from that borrowed employee's actual employer. All of those issues and the options in that situation are going to depend on the particular facts and circumstances of the case, but the best thing that you can do is alert your attorney of the situation as soon as possible so that they can take appropriate action, recommend appropriate action to you, and do those things in a timely manner based on what's required under the law. I'll say from experience, there's You know, once we're into a case, there are decisions that we may make that had we known earlier, you know, that the rehab coordinator was not our client's employee, you know, we may have proceeded differently or or we may have been able to save some money 
um, up front uh, had we known those things earlier. Can I hire only independent contractors or borrow all of my employees? That's a good question. Sometimes employers think about that and think that might be a great way to avoid responsibilities for payroll taxes and overtime and maybe make it a little bit easier to get rid of people versus having to worry about following a disciplinary procedure and write-ups and performance evaluations, all of that, and as a way of avoiding the payment of overtime. But generally, it is not going to work. So if you are an employer and basically have a staff of independent contractors or other borrowed employees and a problem arises or that person, that, that borrowed employee or independent contractor asserts a claim, it is likely going to be difficult to establish that they are truly not your employee. Government agencies, including the Department of Labor, the EEOC, and workers' compensation offices scrutinize claims of independent contractor status. So, for example, the term employee under Title VII includes actual employees of an employer. Even volunteers can qualify as employees if they receive some form of a, a benefit or some form of a compensation, even if it's not monetary, in exchange for serving as a volunteer. Persons classified as independent contractors will be considered employees. If notwithstanding their title, they are actually functioning as employees. Generally, in the Title VII context, courts consider the extent of the employer's control and supervision over the worker to determine whether that person is really an employee or an independent contractor. And that control will include directions on scheduling and performing the work, the kind of occupation and the nature of the skill required, including whether those skills are obtained in the workplace, who is responsible for the costs of providing the services. Is that primarily on the employer or on the independent contractor? How the person is being paid? And then the length of that commitment. So if, if you have someone that you call an independent contractor, but it's an open-ended relationship, odds are, and if that person later claims they were wrongly terminated or should have been paid overtime, and the employer says, well, that person is not my employee, and so I'm not responsible for those things, but it was an open-ended relationship, odds are, the employer will lose that argument if challenged. We've also talked about the joint employer theory under which employers, even if they're an employee of another organization, you as the may be considered a joint employer and can be responsible for the to that employee for wages and things like that. Going back again to the Fair Labor Standards Act and wage and hour laws, the issue of independent contractor classification is very important because an employer who misclassifies an employee and calls them an independent contractor, if the Department of Labor decides that that employee, employer is wrong, not only will the employer be responsible for wages and overtime benefits, but probably and likely for penalties for attempting to skirt the laws of overtime and wage and hour laws. So we've talked about the control test under the Fair Labor Standards Act 
courts use what is called the economic realities test, which basically focuses on whether a worker is economically dependent on the employer. And if the worker is economically dependent on the employer, that person is an employee, not an independent contractor. Some of the factors that are considered in terms of deciding whether someone is economically dependent on an employer is first whether the employee is an integral part of the business. If what they do, the services they provide, is really integral and essential to what the employer does. The closer the services are to the real nature of what the employer does, the more likely that independent contractor will be considered an employee. Also, to what extent is the worker's own skills and managerial abilities affect his ability for profit or loss? The more the employee or the worker controls the ability in this arrangement to make money or lose money, the more likely they will be an independent contractor. But if they are really dependent in terms of their income or their ability to make money on this by what the employer does, they will most likely be considered an employee. Also, what is the worker's investment in the services? So if the worker provides a lot of equipment and materials and uniforms and really makes an investment, and maybe they have their own business and they have insurance, they've really made an investment in this business, then the courts will likely really view them as an independent contractor. But if really the person comes in comes to work, and the employer is providing the equipment, the services, things like that, and this worker does not carry their own insurance, it is very likely that the worker will be considered an employee and not an independent contractor. Again, and then, of course, the employer's control. If really this person that's called an independent contractor comes to work each day but is really taking direction from what they do each day from the employer, then that person is really an employee and not an independent contractor. And it's best for the employer to recognize that up front and accept the responsibilities that come with being an employer to avoid the liability that may definitely follow after the fact for misclassifying someone. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Maureen, Molly, and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have a wonderful day.